Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Penny. For those of you who may be uh, visiting or a guest with us, welcome. Uh, I'm the pastor here at Christ the King, and we're very glad that you're here. Um, this morning, we are in Exodus chapter 15, Exodus 15. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there, or you can follow along in your order of service. <clears throat> if you're new to your Bible, then and you're not sure maybe where Exodus is, it's right near the front. It's the second book of the Bible. It's pretty easy to find, so just kind of turn to the left, and, and you'll find it somewhere. But uh, we're in Exodus 15, and if you recall from last week, God has delivered his people. He has rescued them. The promise that was made that he would redeem his people and lead them out of Egypt, it has, it has been accomplished. God has done it. He parted the sea. The people walked through on dry land. And when Pharaoh's chariots and horsemen came after him, after them, God sent the waters crashing down upon them. He triumphed gloriously. That's what we'll hear in our passage this morning. God triumphed gloriously. He won freedom for his people. He delivered and saved them. They're no longer slaves. And we saw that that triumph encourages us to see with eyes of faith now. Not with eyes of fear, but with faith in the God who wins victory for his people. And as they move out of the sea, we would expect that they would go into the promised land, wouldn't we? I mean, if you're familiar with your Bibles, you know that one of the, the chief promises of the Old Testament is that God would give to his people a land. That was a promise that he made to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, that God would bless Abraham and give him a land. And so Israel had been waiting for that day when they would finally take possession of this land and that they would be a blessing to the nations. And so as they're led out of slavery, you'd expect they would go into the land, wouldn't you? But that's not where the Lord leads them at first. Instead of leading them directly into the land, God takes them into the wilderness into the wilderness. It's an interesting theme. It's a theme that the church has picked up on and embraced for itself for thousands of years, the wilderness. We actually even sung of it. Did you notice that earlier in our, in our worship that we sang, that we have a home within the wilderness, a rest upon the way from the burning of the noontide heat to the, and the burden of the day? The wilderness, this is a theme that the church has picked up on as a metaphor for our experience in the world, and, and it's an apt metaphor, isn't it? I mean, we've experienced the burning of the sun, we've experienced those moments when it can't, we can't find shade and we have longed for the coolness of water. We've experienced this metaphorically, what Israel is about to experience in reality, the wilderness. They were once an enslaved people, they're now a freed people, and they're about to be a wilderness people. So how are they to live in the wilderness? How are we to live in the wilderness? Well, that's what Exodus 15 is going to start to show us. And so we're going to read Exodus 15. To begin with, we'll just read the first 21 verses. This is God's word. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father is God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. 
Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a pile, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters." Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want you to think about some different events that we've all experienced We've all experienced probably all of these, or, or at least most of them. I want you to think about uh, birthdays and anniversaries, weddings and church, okay? You've, you've all experienced at least a handful of those things. I want you to think about them, and what, what do all those things have in common? What do we experience about all of those? Well, I imagine that some of you probably think, well, well food, right? There's food at all of these things. Did, did the donuts get put out earlier? I, I know some of the kids were waiting. You know, there's food even at church, right? We, we eat. Or maybe you're thinking, well, well, these are places where people gather, right? And oftentimes it's people that we love and know and care about. Maybe you're thinking laughter, right? That these are places where there is laughter. Even in Presbyterian churches, there is laughter, often at our own expense, but laughter nonetheless, right? All of these places have that. And and you'd be right if you point to laughter or to community, to people or to food. You'd be right. There's actually something that I think of that isn't any of those when I think about birthdays and anniversaries and church and anything worthy of celebration, and that is song. See, in all those events, we sing. We just can't help but do it. I mean, think about last week. If you were at the picnic last week, then you know that before we went through the line, what did we do? We, 
We called Justice up front, Horner, and we said it was his birthday because Lauren come, came and whispered in my ear, today is Justice's birthday. And so we called him up front, and I said, we're going to pray, and before we eat, we're going to sing, right? And that was normal. No one thought that was strange. I mean, think about if, if I would have called him up front, and I would have said, hey, everyone, today is Justice's birthday. Let's pray and eat. And I didn't sing. I didn't invite us to sing, right? Probably one of you, some of you would have come up and very politely, very casually whispered in my ear and said, Penny, you forgot to sing. And then what if I would have said, no, 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 we don't need to sing. I mean, I just said it's his birthday, right? You can wish him birthday and we've got all those cakes. We'll just say one of those is his birthday cake and that'll be enough, right? And, and whoever reminded me would think, what kind of weird Canadian sort of thing is he trying to bring in here? And we need to expunge it from our community because when it's a birthday, we sing. It's normal, right? We sing. And it's normal not just at birthdays, it's normal for all sorts of celebrations. When we experience those things that are good and beautiful, sweet, when we experience those things, we want to sing. It's a very human thing to do. In fact, the theologian and philosopher James K.A. Smith, he put it this way. He said that music and song seem to stand as packed microcosms of what it means to be human. And he's right. It is a distinctly human endeavor for us to sing. And that's what Israel does. It's fascinating, isn't it, that as they enter into the wilderness, before they take any steps towards the promised land, they actually stop and sing. That's what the first 21 verses are. It's song. It's poetry. They can't help but do it. That they stop and sing. And that's the first thing I want us to note. That as we live in the wilderness, that a wilderness people are going to be a people of song. A people of song. But what do they sing about? Well, they recount the past. I don't know if you noticed this, but the, pretty much the entirety of the song is just a recounting of what has just happened. There's a little bit of newness that takes place, and we'll get to that in a minute. But really, the majority of the song is just them saying what God has done, that he has triumphed victoriously, that he has cast the horse and the rider into the sea. They're just expressing what they have just experienced, right? I mean, that's what verse 1 and 21 are doing. They're maybe the chorus of this song. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. They're simply recounting what God has done. But why sing? I mean, they just experienced it. We have a historical account. They could have just read it, right? Moses could have just stood up and just recounted it with simple prose. Why sing? Why did they need this poetry? Well, here again, James K. Smith helps us. He goes on to say in another place, music gets in us in ways that other forms of discourse rarely do. A song gets absorbed into our imagination in a way that mere texts rarely do. When we, what we sing says something significant about who we are and whose we are. You see, the truth is, is that simple prose and historical account, those are vitally important. But when we consider all that God has done, all that he has accomplished for his people, they are not enough. We need heightened language. 
We need to sing. We need poetry. I mean, that is what God's people have been doing from the very beginning. They've been singing. The book of Job tells us that when the creation was first formed, the creation itself was singing to God. And in Genesis, do you remember? Adam is formed, and he's looking for a helper, right? And no helper could be found of him. And so God puts him to sleep and takes out the rib, and he forms Eve out of the rib and brings Eve to Adam. And what does he do? He doesn't go, nice to meet you, Eve. He sings, this is that last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He can't help but do it. There's poetry. And when we skip ahead to the book of Judges, when God delivers his people from the king of Canaan, in Judges chapter 5, Deborah sings. She leads God's people in song. In the center of our Bibles is a hymn book of 150 hymns that God's people would sing during corporate worship. And we move ahead into the New Testament. And as God's people, the disciples, are walking with Jesus up to the Mount of Olives, we're told that there was a song on their lips. I mean, flip through any kind of genre in the Bible, historical narrative, poetry, prophecy, epistle, any genre, and we find song. It's as though God has dropped us into a two or three or four thousand year old musical. We can't help but find God's people singing at the amazing things that God has done. Them recounting to one another all that they have through Christ and through God. That regardless of whether they are in a land filled with fruitful produce or the dryness of the wilderness, God's people sing and remind one another what he has done. And friends, that's why we sing today. We don't simply sing because uh, it's our tradition. And we don't simply sing because we have people who have great musical talents. They, they do. We sing because this is what God's people do. That even in the midst of the wilderness, we are to sing to our God. And so the application is simple. We need to sing. We need your voice. As we gather as God's people each Lord's Day, we need to sing. We need all of our voices, young and old. And so kids, kids, we need you to sing. Now, I know that some of y'all can't even read yet, <laughs> but that's okay. Stand and hear the songs being sung around you. Hear the words. Learn these songs as you listen to them. Even just hum along. Kids, we need your voice but we also need your parents' voices. <laughs> and so you can nudge your dad when he's not singing, because I see y'all. <laughs> we need your voices too. Now, I know that sometimes it feels a little weird, right? I mean, because what other context other than a birthday or an anniversary or a wedding do we sing? And yet, we, so we start making up all these excuses, right? Like, I can't read music, or I do read music, and the music isn't printed, or I don't have a very beautiful voice, right? I sing out of tune, right? Join the club. We make up all these excuses, and yet, as God's people, we don't sing because we make beautiful music. We sing because God has done something beautiful to us. We sing to the one who's worked wondrously, who's triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has cast into the sea, but he has also cast our sin into the sea. It is no more. I mean, that is worth singing over, that God has delivered us. He did not just deliver Israel, but Jesus went into the place of death and he brought with him life. How can we not sing about that? To sing praise to our God, 
to declare all that he has done on our behalf. We sing and rehearse to one another all that God has done, but our songs aren't just focused on the past. They're also on proclaiming the future. That's what we see in this song. Look at verses 14 through 18. The people sing, the peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Do you notice what this is describing? It's describing events that haven't taken place. I mean, the people are seized with terror. The people of God are walking before the nations. They're planted on God's holy mountain on Zion. The nations are trembling. None of this has happened yet. They are actually singing to one another what they know will happen, what they are sure will be true because of God. They have this future expectation. You see, song forms us not just by remembering what God has done in the past, but what will happen in the future. That God's people will dwell with him in his abode. That's what they sing of. That the Lord will reign forever. You see, song orients us to what will be. And in fact, this song that Moses led Israel through, it, it's not just a one-hit wonder on the banks of the Red Sea. It gets repeated. If we turn to the book of Revelation in Revelation 15, in fact, if you look at the book of Revelation, it's filled with song. But in Revelation 15, we're told that the heavens are filled with a song, and one of the songs that they are singing is the song of Moses, the servant of God and of the Lord. And coupled with this song is the song of the Lamb, which the heavens are singing, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. That is the song of our future. That is what Israel is singing of. They are orienting one another to what will come about. They're declaring to one another the truths that God will fulfill. And that's what our songs are filled with. Not just recounting the past, but telling of the future. I mean, do you remember a couple weeks ago? We sang, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. We sang, no chilling winds nor poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore where sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more. That is the future reality that we have put our hope in. That there is a day coming that we have not experienced in full yet, but we will one day will, when there will be no more pain and there will be no more death, where there will be no more sickness, no chilling wind, nor poisonous breath. There's a future day. Those are the words that we sing today. We are proclaiming to one another of the future with our song, just as Israel did. You will bring them in, your people, and plant them on your mountain. 
The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which you, your hands have established. That is where we will dwell. That is what our songs are filled with. A hope built on the past. A hope for the future. What God is going to do. Now, I imagine that as Israel sang this song, and as they were starting to think about this future day, and I imagine that as we do it as well, we can become so fixated on the triumph of God that we have a triumphalism about today. What theologians sometimes call an, called an over-realized eschatology, where we think that the future will actually come in full today, and, and we can start to focus on that, but but the truth is, is that even as we sing as a people in the wilderness, we experience the bitterness of the wilderness. You see, our experience is not just with song, it's actually with bitterness as well. And that's what I want us to see as well, that as being a wilderness people, we're not just a people of song, but we're a people that know the bitterness of the wilderness. And that's what Israel experiences in verse 22, follow along. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Now think about that. They've just witnessed God's deliverance, his saving work. And now they are wandering in the wilderness, in the desert, three days with no water. Three days with no water. Think, think about how parched their mouths would be. The heat bearing down upon them, dehydrated, afraid that, that maybe they won't find water in time. I mean, how long can we go without water? How, it's only been a few minutes, and I already need a drink. But three days? Three days. I could imagine that as they walked and as they wandered, that the scouts out ahead, it's not in the text, but I can imagine this, the scouts out ahead as, as they're looking off into the distance, maybe they saw palm trees silhouetted against the horizon. And they knew what that would mean. It would mean that there is a pool of water, and so I could imagine that they begin to run. They begin to run with all the energy that they have left. They begin to run, hoping beyond hope that this is not a mirage. Hoping that they will come to this pool and they will find not the water evaporated away in their imagination, but real cool water. And as they run, they fall at the pool's edge and they find it is water. And I can imagine they throw their heads in, expecting to find relief. And they only taste bitterness. The bitterness of the wilderness. The burning of the noontide heat. This water that they couldn't consume, it wasn't life-giving. It was rancid. We know what this bitterness is like. We've tasted of it. If you're a Christian here this morning, you've experienced the sweet song of salvation. You've heard that song erupting in your heart when you first believe, and we have sung songs of our souls that declare that we are Christ and he is ours. We know the sweetness, but we also know the bitterness. We know the parchedness of the land. 
We know the bitterness of the wilderness like hurricanes and flood, like shooters and murder. But we know this bitterness not just on nationalistic scales, not just in those sorts of events. We know it in our own hearts, don't we? Pain and death, sickness and sorrow, strife and relational difficulties. We felt it in our souls when we sin, and we know it in our bones when we ache. That we are still in the wilderness. And friends, that's why we need these songs, like what Moses sings. This is why we need these songs, because there are times when the bitterness of the world will take our words away. I know that there are times when you come on a Sunday morning and you are feeling the bitterness of this world. You're feeling your sin bearing down or you're feeling the, just the weight of the brokenness of this world and you have no words to speak. I know that that happens to you. It happens to me. But it is in those times that we need to continue to gather. Because in those times, we are given words in our mouths. Words to sing and words to pray. Words for when we have no words of our own, we are given them for us to speak and to sing, to pray and to remind one another of. We know those days when we have allowed the scorching sun of the wilderness to to hide the future that we have. We know those days when we're struggling to remember the great works of God when those words have been taken away, and that's when we need these words. Words like we've already sung. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, praise him, for he is my health and salvation. How oft in grief, you know that grief, how oft in grief hath not he brought thee relief, spreading his wings to o'ershade thee. We need to sing those songs and sing the songs of Moses. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. You see, friends, we need those words in the midst of the bitterness of the wilderness. When our sins are burdening us, and we are weighed down by them, we need those words. He has become my salvation. He is my God. And despite living in the wilderness, I will still praise you. See, we don't sing songs to ignore the wilderness, but to remind us of the hope that we have as we abide in it. Hope because God doesn't leave us in the wilderness. He provides for his people. That's the third thing I want us to see. That as wilderness people, we live as people who have been provided for. God provides. Look at verse 25. Moses cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made... For them a statue and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they camped there by the water. God takes the bitterness 
and he miraculously makes it sweet. He didn't let them die. He didn't let them waste away in the scorching desert. He provided what they needed for continued life, but his provision isn't simply miraculous. Do you see how every day it is as well? Look at verse 27, 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. God led them where to find this in the wilderness, this place of refuge and relief, shade from the sun and water in the midst of dryness. God is providing all that they need for life. But it's not just provision in order to maintain their salvation. It's also a way of distinguishing them as his people. Look at verse 26. He says, if you continue to walk in faithfulness, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Now let's think about what God did to Egypt. He brought plagues. Maybe we could call them diseases upon them. Let's think about just one of those, the Nile. Do you remember this river that brought life to Egypt? What did God do to it? He turned it into blood. This place that brought them life, he actually brought death upon them with. It was a sign of judgment upon Egypt. But he says to his people, I'm going to take that which was death, that which was bitter, and I'm not going to make it all the worse. I'm going to make it sweet. I'm going to make it good. I'm not going to treat you as I did Egypt. I'm going to show you grace and love. He took the undrinkable, the bitter water, and he made it life-preserving. God doesn't leave his people in the wilderness to wander. He continues to provide for them. And he provides for them by calling them to obedience. That's how we are to respond to this. His grace and his mercy, that's what he said in verse 26, right? If you listen diligently to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, listen to his commandments and keep them that that's what we are to do. It would be easy in the wilderness to look and allow that to influence how we are to live, for the world around us to orient us in how we are to speak and what we are to think. But what God says is that as we are living, as we are following him, that we obey him because he has provided for us. You see, God's people, those who have received his grace, we obey his voice even in the midst of the wilderness. This idea of obeying despite our circumstances, despite living in the wilderness, it reminds me of the works of Caspar David Friedrich. Are any of y'all familiar with his works? Any of you? Just one. Our painter, of course. (laughs) Caspar David Friedrich was a German painter in the 1700s and 1800s. Um, He was of the Romantic period, and he painted landscapes. And uh, if you've been to my office, you've actually seen one of his works. I I have a print. It's not the original. (laughs) That would be awesome. Um, But uh, I have one of his prints. It's actually his most famous works. It's called uh, A Wanderer Above a Sea of Cloud or a Sea of Fog. And it is a beautiful, beautiful painting. Um, and, And it will show up in a sermon, I'm sure, at some point, but not today. There's a different painting that I want to describe for you. It's actually my favorite of his. This one is called Monastery Graveyard in the Snow. And I love this painting. Uh, we, we actually have, the original was destroyed in World War II in the bombing of Berlin. And all we have left is a black and white picture of it. I love this painting. The scene is this woods. The, the woods are desolate. It's winter. 
it is dark. The sun is just barely beginning to rise. And so, so the, the, the scene is clouded with darkness. There are no leaves on the trees because it is winter. There is snow on the ground. And at the bottom of this little hill, kind of in a glade, as you look down, you can see the remains of an old cathedral. It's just remains. The walls have all caved in. There's just a few bricks left. The foundation is still on the ground. In the nearness to, to you, as you are looking through, you, you see a graveyard at the top of a little hill, and, and all the tombstones are, are crooked. They're not kept. It's dark and cold. It's desolate. It's the wilderness. And in the midst of this, what's amazing is that there is this one small little line of monks who have walked through the graveyard and they are progressing towards the cathedral. These monks who are continuing to respond to the call that God has put on their life, they continue to show up day after day, morning after morning. They enter into the cathedral. I love this painting, this idea that that despite their circumstances, despite their situation, their surroundings, they continue to move forward in obedience to what God has called them to. And so we have to imagine, this is the beauty of art, it invites us to imagine, we have to imagine that, that maybe as they have walked through the graveyard and they have walked past the saints of old and as they progress into the cathedral and, and the walls that have fallen and they are standing upon the rubble, I can imagine that maybe they form a circle and they look upon one another, or maybe they actually turn their backs to one another and they look out into the desolation. They look out and they feel the cold and they see the lifeless trees and they are reminded of the saints who have gone before and they stand in the midst of the wilderness and I imagine they do exactly what monks do. They sing. And that is what we're to do. That as we stand in the midst of the rubble and as we experience the burden of our sin and the coldness of this world, that as we walk past saints who have gone before us and are reminded of the great things that God has done, we sing. We are obedient to what God has called us to. We sing those songs that tell of what he has done in the past and remind us of the future that awaits us. We sing of his commandments that he calls us to obey, we sing. That friends, as we go forth in this wilderness, until we will have that day, that happy day, when faith will be sight, as we continue to move forward in this wilderness, that is what we do today and tomorrow. And even as we enter into that happy home, we will do it all our days. We will be a people of song. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would help us to do that. That as we look upon the wilderness and as we feel the burden of the day, that as we feel the scorching of the sun, that we would remind one another, that we would sing and make music about what you have done. That you are our God who has redeemed us. You are the one who has triumphed gloriously, not just for Israel, but for us. And so I ask that you would give us songs to sing that you would enliven our hearts, that we could not help but contain the praise that you are due. Move in your people. Help us to sing for your glory 
and your namesake. And we pray in the name of Christ and all God's people said together, Amen.